for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free, or perhaps one that came directly from us, there is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Trickster, Elam Amazu, and Habiba Mar for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by SH, M. Shelton, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Jason and I are back to talk about UFC 282 and some other news around MMA. As far as the card, it wasn't one of my favorites. We really only want to talk about the main event between Jan Blahovich versus Magomed Ankalaev and Ilya Toporia's continued unbeaten streak beating Bryce Mitchell. But first, let's talk a bit about this gambling scandal. Some of the members of our Discord are calling this Krausgate because all the coverage only talks about Kraus but not the low pay. Promoting and pushing gambling by saying all your favorite fighters and coaches are now betting on the UFC and also paying fighters nothing to fight, of course there's going to be suspicious stuff happening. I can't even say Kraus got caught because up until this, the UFC basically said fighters and coaches betting on fights was fine. So it's regulation by enforcement, meaning it's fine and we'll even encourage it until we change our mind. Well, then that's on you, UFC. Gambling isn't the stock market. If you have inside knowledge, the point of that knowledge is to use it to gamble. That's why it's gambling, not investing. It's all risky and possibly shady as fuck. The thing that crosses the line is when you tell a fighter to lose. Now, Jason, watching that Derek Minner fight, what did you think? I mean, it seemed obvious that he was hurt, right? He threw one strike before he winced in pain. He had an existing injury. And when you, when you have that information, so you, you made a great point, right? When you said that information is available and betting isn't, and gambling isn't illegal, betting on fights isn't illegal, and there's, you're not dissuaded, you're not uh, admonished in any way, shape, or form for doing so. And you also tell these athletes that if you don't compete, you don't get paid. Well, half of something is better than all of nothing, right? So if you take that time to heal up, then you're actually incentivized to go out there and perform injured to the point where you lose 50% of your pay. And so if you say to yourself, I have no physical chance of beating this motherfucker in front of me, but hey, if you guys want to make a few bucks on the side, I'm probably going to go and duck my head into a fucking guillotine if shit gets real, <laughs> right? Why fucking wouldn't they? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? I know uh, there's no honor in that, but also fighting on one leg or with one arm as TJ Dillashaw did wasn't all that fucking honorable anyway. Yeah. There was no shield to go out on. Left his shield at home because he couldn't hold it because he only had one fucking arm. The other incentive to fight injured is if you go into the fight with an injury and then the fight is over and then you say you got injured during the fight, because 
You don't get insurance through the UFC, but if you get injured during a fight, they will cover you. They're also supposed to cover you during training and such, but from everything fighters have said, there's a lot of like loopholes and they don't honor everything. But if it happens in the fight, right, you've even had Justin Gaethje saying he wished his nose got broken in a fight so he could finally fix the septum. Absolutely, right? So fighting injured is a way to get some of those injuries covered and healed and finally fixed. So if you've had a nagging injury, it might make sense to go into a fight injured, right? So there's even more incentive. Well, that's an absolutely outstanding point. And I promise you that Gagey's fight or Gagey's nose has been broken prior to some of his fights, but it's been more fucking broken in those fights. He basically headbutts fists for a living uh, with, with really no defensive consideration or responsibility whatsoever. But he's incredibly entertaining because of that style. So as bad as his nose could have been, I assure you it is worse because of competing for the UFC. And for them to deny him any coverage to get that fixed later on would be a fucking shame. It would be an absolute travesty. But you just, you just make a great point that when there is, no, there is no want to protect these fighters, there's no want to, um, to keep them healthy. Everything is this performative theater to pretend you have the best interests in the, the, the safety of fighters at heart with the, the occasional sacrificial lamb getting picked off by USADA, but they don't really care. I mean, it is all a personification of the Just Bleed folks, and you know it from like DraftKings. They're a fucking hour away from putting Pornhub on the fucking canvas. <laughs> the demographic that they are fucking catering to, I mean, you don't need to be a professor of marketing or an adjunct instructor of marketing at West Virginia University to understand. <laughs> all right, a little shout out to me. <laughs> but to know to whom they're catering. And right, their demographic is pretty identifiable as assholish white males who are, never mind, I'm good. <laughs> Stop. Now, the UFC doesn't want to say it, but the whole reason this thing blew up as big as it did is that the fight looked like it was fixed. It looked fishy. And the gambling is only important because it's one of the things being used as evidence for possible fight fixing because of all the money that came in, along with the weird fight itself. Now, fixing can mean a lot of things. A work can mean a lot of things. What looked fishy was, it looked like he went into the fight injured and then he kicked. Obviously, it hurt. And then he chose to kick again. That's what made the UFC like really suspicious along with the gambling lines. I think he did it because he really wanted to make sure his knee was torn so that the UFC would pay for it. I don't think they're going to pay for it anymore, but I think that was his idea. Like, let me just tear the shit out of this thing so that they really fixed it, you know? Very obvious, very tangible, identifying moment, right? Which that's the problem whenever you're fixing fights or whenever you're trying to sell it is that what you do to make it so identifiable, you tend to oversell. And that becomes the identifiable aspect of the fuckery afoot. Yeah, I don't think he was trying to throw the fight because he wasn't going to win anyway. I think he was just trying to sell the injury. So when they ask him about the injury, the insurance people, he could be like, look at the fight right there. That's where I tore the shit out of it, right? right? No doubt. No doubt. But up until this point, up until all this came down on Kraus and his team, fighters didn't need bribes to make money off of having weird fights or even possibly fixing fights. You could just go on your app and you could bet on your opponent. I said you'd get fight fixing as soon as the Supreme Court made it legal. So 
let me ask you this. How often have you seen a fight in the UFC where you're like, huh, that looks odd? A lot. <laughs> a lot. I always see them duck into guillotines. I'm like, oh, really? And then they tap so quickly. I'm like, eh. You know, fighters fight, which means and that's the cliche everyone loves to throw around. And I say fighters do a lot of things, really, right? I don't think we just distill it to fighting. But fighters that fight should at least fight out of a guillotine for a second or two and not tap so quickly. But it seemed like an expedient way out. And uh, they, they, there's been more than a, a couple of those. And it's a safe way out, right? It's a very safe way out. If there's automatic plausible deniability from the like the diehards who are like, if you've never been in a fight, you don't get to say, all right, come on now. You know, he, he tapped quickly. It is, unless you've ever been in a choke and you don't know. Look, anyone who's done jujitsu for an hour has been in a guillotine choke, normally a bad one from a white belt, right? And then when panic taps in the first four seconds, if anything, you tend to wait it out a little bit too long. So um, if you've made it to the UFC level, <laughs> I think you have a little more fight in you to identify the, the, the chances of being put unconscious or have a throat injury or an injury to the trach or to the larynx or anything like that. So yeah, I've seen more than a couple. We can go all the way back to, um, to Rich Franklin uh, versus Ken Shamrock. And that fight looked very, very odd. With the, It looked like a, a strange, like, Shamrock tried to sell some sort of like lunging in clothesline when he was getting punched, and it didn't look like he looked like his legs left him before he even got punched. And then they say, "Well, it's because it's because he's seven hundred years old." Well, then why the fuck is he fighting Rich Franklin in the UFC? Well, that matchmaking itself, you could argue, is a fix in itself, right? Yeah, and I've how many times? I mean, would you consider it a fix if someone's if? And I've been told I've had my fighters told that told this and i've been told this i'm like well why why would we even consider that fight we have no chance at winning normally it's like on the lower level and they say we'll just go out there and put on a show (laughs) what the the fuck does that mean put on a show okay okay so basically they put you in a fight where they already predetermined the outcome by making the match. Yes. And so basically make it as entertaining as you can before the guaranteed end happens. Yeah. And they say things like, hey, you know, we'll give him a little extra uh, on his ticket sales this time around. And maybe next time around, we'll take care of him. Or we'll take care of so-and-so, which he's one of your fighters you should be looking out for and moving anyway. And sometimes you got to throw so-and-so to the wolves to make sure so-and-so flourishes. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I think I got a lot of fucking wolves if I match them up correctly earlier in their career and build them up and you know do the right things rather than just, I don't know, making them fodder for whatever, I don't know, whatever twisted matchmaking is supposed to get whatever jerk off frat guy an extra win or two early in his bullshit local fucking MMA career. I like what Ben Duffy, the editor at SureDog said. He basically said, with Kraus, you never just see one cockroach. If you see one cockroach, you know there's like a thousand others out there, right? So basically, if this looks fishy, there's some suspicious stuff happening with this, this isn't the only one. You're hoping that's what everybody believes, but you're making Kraus the fall guy when there's probably so much more than this and you just want the investigation to end right now. Right? Of course. Like DraftKings, you're inundated with information, with real-time odds. While you're watching fighting, they want gambling. They want it. 
And Dana White's a known gambler. And normally you would want to be as far removed from that as possible, even though Vegas is the fight capital of the world. When's the last time you watched a boxing match and they were like, you know, the, the odds are the the knockout in the eighth round paying fucking 15 to one. Like no one's talking about that. <laughs> Live odds, yeah. No one's doing that because of the the integrity of sport. And Dana White came in with with the Fertitta brothers, and they stripped that away almost immediately with the fucking bravado and assholishness that they brought to it. And then Dana White will talk about how much how much he tips while he's gambling, how much he wins, how much he loses. The problem with that is, let's say he and I get it, he's worth a hundred mil or more, whatever he's worth. So like losing a million isn't doesn't mean much to him. But what if it did? What if he what if he lost more than his share, more than he wanted to lose? Well, now. Because of that, it's the same reason why if you have if you're uh, if you're executive level position in a Fortune 500 company, they do a credit check. You know, I mean, it sucks; it's a little bit invasive, but you want to make sure that these assholes you're putting in charge of some substantial shit that have some severe serious influence and control and power aren't looking at eight figure debt. You know, you want to make sure that everything's on the up and up, or at least that there isn't a motivation. To have your thumb on the scale. The person who brags the most about gambling in the UFC isn't James Krause, is Dana fucking White. <laughs> the way he kind of scoffs at any criticism, or I mean, if anyone's even seen where he was asked a normal question about where the where the investigation might be, and so how the fuck should I know? You think they tell me? Why would I know? Because you're the president of the UFC. Who else within the UFC would that reporter? ask to whom would he present that fucking question if not you dana and why are you acting like a giant man baby fuck and fuck like who's your pr guy but again once you get that kind of level of power and control then all bets are off so propriety and norms off oh, fuck them like, take a look at the fucking canvas of the ufc <laughs> what is it oh is it fucking we got booze monster energy drink trojan condoms it's basically a nascar car holy shit but god forbid we put condom depot in the back of someone's shorts and they make an extra buck or two but holy fuck you know i mean shit i'm sorry for so much but i'm just uh, we could talk about the pimblet decision and everything there seems to be a narrative that almost always works out in the best case scenario and if you have for the UFC, if you have any understanding of public relations, or if you have just even a slightly analytical and logical brain, then some of it becomes pretty obvious. And then you can try to involve yourself with MMA Twitter and just get dumber by the minute and <laughs> realize that it's not hard to fool these folks. <laughs> a note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, break free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now, 
going back to something you mentioned earlier about TJ Dillashaw, fighters fight injured all the time. But coming in as compromised as someone like TJ, isn't that basically a form of fix? Because you know you can't win. I mean, his injury was even worse than Minner's. Like, there was no way he was going to win like that. And so who's to say then people who knew about that injury didn't bet on Sterling? Exactly. And I mean, I guess if you took a forensic accountant and had him do a deep dive into the people's bank accounts around TJ Dillashaw, I would I would expect that some of them probably made a little bit of money betting against him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying he did this, but it would also wouldn't be that hard, especially then before all this shit happened to give money to a friend or a family member to bet in their name. Right. And then you split the proceeds. So there's a lot of ways you could play this. So actually now in hindsight, it wasn't just about his shot at a title. I think there was like financial reasons why he did that fight, not only because he needed the base pay, right? Even if he can't get the win bonus, but there might have been other ways he was subsidizing that fight. And also he wanted the UFC to pay for his shoulder surgery. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of things afoot. What else is also fishy to me is he retired recently. So there's two things. I think he's retiring to get out of the USADA testing pool so that he could do whatever he wants and probably maybe needs to do to recover and heal from this thing and then comes out of retirement, right? And then he could go back into the testing pool. That's one thing. And also this whole gambling thing. It's kind of interesting that he announces retirement now instead of earlier, like the week of the Kraus thing. So that also was fishy, right? Like, okay, <laughs> uh, injured fighters fighting. Uh, let me get out of here. And also we know he's a cheater. Right, I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted some distance from it, right? But I mean, I I don't think he's ever the type to throw a fight. He's too competitive. He's so competitive that he would do EPO and whatever he needed to do to win. Yes, right. He's a fiercely competitive human being, but I also think he's knowledgeable enough of his own body and own ability, and he's wrestled at an incredibly high level. He's fought at a world class level. He's been a world champion. He knows you are not beating Aljamain Sterling with one arm. And I think he actually did try to win. Yes. You know, and maybe he would have had to pay some of his people back if he did accidentally beat Aljamain Sterling with one arm. But I think those bets were hedged by knowing, Hey, my boy only has one arm and he can't beat so-and-so in practice without that shit falling loose. And, uh, there's probably no chance that he's going to do it against uh, a very, very large, very, very athletic, very, very, well-versed 135-pound world champion at this time in Aljamain Sterling. So, like, what do you do? It's not illegal, and if you didn't throw the fight, but you brought up insider trading. They have inside information. They know, hey, you keep telling fighters that fighters fight, and that means fighters fight hurt. And if it's the promotion above all else, you've got to put on a show. All right. And if they can't possibly win, then what's to keep them from making an extra buck? You know, at that point, the sport loses its integrity. Because of that, those parameters you've built in, you've baked it into the fucking cake, Dana. And this is what you get. So eat it, motherfucker. <laughs> you baked it. You baked it. You made it. It's yours. You own it. And quit yelling at the fucking reporter who has enough balls to ask you a question that is befitting the situation. And shame on the reporter for cowering as soon as he asked it. I mean, basically with their low pay, right? They're incentivized 
to look for any way to make money, including performance bonuses, right? To go out there and fight rock and sock them at the expense of their own health, right? To throw caution into the wind. That's all for the performance bonus. So if they're willing to like die in the ring to make money, this is a lot safer, right? If this wasn't designed like this, if it wasn't about the low pay, then no UFC fighter would be a podcaster, would be a fight analyst, would be a gambling guru, would be a social media influencer. They wouldn't do this if they got paid more. I promise you, they're doing all of this and looking for any ways to subsidize their pay because of how little they get paid. That's why. And so Dana White said it wouldn't make sense to fix the fight because it wouldn't be financially worth it. And it's like, you don't pay them shit. Of course it's worth it, right? If you're paying them millions of dollars, yeah, it's not worth it. But if somebody's making like, they're still fighting out a contender's contract and they're making like eight and eight or 10 and 10, and that might be the only fight they get all year, yeah, it's worth it. And especially for fighters who are about to get cut anyway. If you're about to get cut anyway, so your career in the UFC is over. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. If you're a journeyman and your career is just about over, what's to stop you from doing that, right? They're not going to bring you back, right? Like, they don't care about you. You're a commodity to them. So, hey, why wouldn't they make an extra buck? What incentive is there for them not to? And it just doesn't exist. Take a look at TJ D- Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw fought, what, once in three years? until the Aljamain Sterling fight because he had the USADA suspension and then the torn knee when he fought Cody Sanhagen. So he wasn't competing. He wasn't making money. You know, he had a lifestyle that well, was, was built off of him being a world, uh, world title holder, a world champion who you know, was probably getting pay-per-view points. I don't know the structure of his contract, but he was the man. And then all of a sudden, he's not getting any revenue, any income. He's not making any money over those years. And I don't know if he owns a gym, but every, I don't know what he did for any extra, any extra income in that time. I didn't do a deep dive into his finances, but I know fighters are notoriously bad at money and notoriously bad at investing. And whatever the situation is, when you tend to rely on that kind of steady income fighting once, twice, three times a year, whatever, um, when it dries up for three years, when it's only one fight in that time, you know, it's, it's problematic. So, you know, the, the incentive to fight injured or put yourself in a situation that is honestly unwinnable. And then you get to say, well, as long as he's throwing anything when he goes out there, no fight is unwinnable. Okay, but would you bet on a one-armed TJ Dillashaw to beat Aljamain Sterling in a million years? You'd bet on the other guy. <laughs> you never do it. And the thing about that Derek Minner fight is that's not even the most suspicious fight I've seen since the Supreme Court legalized gambling and the UFC got in bed with all the gambling sites because there's been some prelim fights where they advertised that this was like the biggest odds ever. This is the biggest underdog fight we've ever had in UFC history, right? We've had several UFC prelim fights, the ones nobody pays attention to have those types of odds. And we've had several times where it was a fishy fight and all of a sudden the underdog wins, right? With a finish. And so then they'll even talk about if you had bet on this finish, it would have paid out blah, 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 blah. $100 would have paid out $50,000, right? So before when they had fishy fights until the gambling sites started getting pissed off, the UFC 
used to use that as an example for why you should gamble, right? Because they want people to gamble because then you're more invested in the UFC. You need to watch this thing because you have money on it. And the more you get addicted to UFC gambling, the more you watch the UFC. So it's parasitic. Of course, it makes sense. They want you to gamble. So previously, they used to use those suspicious fights to get you to sign up for these things, right? And I think even the gambling sites were complicit. They were like, you know what? It's within the margin of like money we're willing to give up because it's kind of good advertising to see people win the lotto every once in a while. The problem was with Derek Minner, it was like, from what I understand, not only a lot of money, but it was like consistent money coming in because they kept changing the odds so that money would stop coming in on Minner to lose. And even despite them moving the odds so that money would stop coming in, it kept coming in all weekend. So that's the only reason why the gambling sites got mad. They accept that there's going to be fishy business. Then they're like, we could still use that. Every once in a while when you have fishy business and a big thing pays off, we can use that as free advertising. So they still make money off of like fishy or even fixed sites. But with this, it was too much of a problem. And then if it becomes too much of a problem, then you've gone too far. And now it can delegitimize the sport, quote unquote, which it's not even a sport. Dana White doesn't even call it a sport. Right. He calls it the fight business. Right. On purpose. The whole fix is you control the standings. Let's say it was like any other sport. And then you make up the standings so you could get whoever team A to team B to face each other because that's who you want. That in itself is a fix. That's why you're not allowed to do that. You have to go by the standings. You have to go by the schedule. Right. So the whole thing is not a sport. The whole thing is a business where you could arbitrarily decide things. And it's like, the UFC owns their own rankings, right? Like even boxing, the promotions don't own their rankings. It's a third party. It's an independent party owns the rankings. Everything else in sports, the rankings are not owned by any one business owner, any one team owner. Whereas in the UFC, the UFC owns the rankings. So the whole point for them to own everything, to have a monopoly is so that they can put their thumb on the scale and they don't have to bribe anybody because they are everyone. Everyone there is to bribe works for the UFC because they control all of it. They own all of it. So the whole thing is a work. You know, whether it's like WWE scripted or not, doesn't matter. You're comparing it to the wrong thing. Don't compare it to how close it is to WWE. Compare it to how close it is to other sports. And then you realize how not like other sports it is. It, it's so brazen and so in your face. That it, I didn't even know how we were going to talk about it because, like, most of the stuff is so fucking obvious, right? It's, <laughs> like, you know, you, hey, the, the UFC still has Conor McGregor, at least till recently, ranked, right? They had him <laughs> ranked when he was out of the USADA testing pool. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> and everyone forgets Mark Hunt versus Brock Lesnar when Lesnar pissed hot and they still let him compete. Yep. And we have the whole picograms bullshit. When the picograms study and the pulsing was done on a drug known as clomid, that's the scientific documentation. Now, John Jones also tested positive for clomid, which is also known as clomiphene uh, citrate. And that never pulsed in his system. What did supposedly pulse in his system was oral terinobol, which has <laughs> never been proven to have a pulsatile effect in any study. So you're saying he tested positive for two separate things. One continues to pulse years later. One does not. But the one that does not, there's actual literature, scientific literature that shows that it does pulse. Why? <laughs> and there is no question as to why. It's just like, no, that's what it is. He can fight. Okay. 
All right. So let's quit pretending that there are rules. Let's quit pretending that this thing is a legitimate sport. It is fun to watch. Like I said, it is violent. It is chaotic. You know, sometimes amazing upsets happen. It's fantastic. Like I'll, I'll reference Kama Worthy and some of his fights. You know, he's a, a real tough kid. I'm out here in Pittsburgh. I love what he's done, being like an 11, minus 1100 underdog. But those upsets can happen. Yes, 100%. And it's beautiful when it does, especially when that fighter has grit and he's been through it and he finally got his chance. Like those stories are fucking great, but they are rare and they are outliers. And that the, the, those are some of the more poignant, the more beautiful in my mind, that the, those types of moments exist in a, a sport so fraught with corruption. And if and I had I, I had a promoter, I won't say his name, but he said, hey, if you try to bring truth out of this game, you're going to end up in the fucking river. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, seriously? Okay. All right. So and then my boy, Billy Briscoe, uh, my boxing coach over at Brazen Boxing MMA said, listen, you got to know how this game is played. You got to know. Got to know. So there's some scary people involved in MMA. In the fight game in general. If you, if you thought you were getting into this business to do things um, with truth and honor, I mean, I wish that were the way. And I thought this is the, the last bastion of meritocracy, uh, and that ends at the amateur level. I mean, it actually, it actually dies at the amateur level, too, at the higher levels. You start to see the corruption start to spill its way in there. But with money and influence, there's going to be corruption. and so, you know, but at the end of the day, it's still a sport we love and we follow it for, for reasons that are beyond us, beyond our logic and reasoning. Um, and it, we love it in spite of ourselves. And we wake up every day and we, we do it again. You know what, though? The reason why it's so obvious for us and not for a lot of UFC fans or MMA fans is because the UFC has kind of marketed itself to this niche and grown this niche. And it started with Joe Rogan. And a lot of fighters where they admit that they don't watch any other sport. They've never watched any other sport. This is the first sport they've gotten into. It's the only sport they've ever cared about. So they're kind of like the anti-sport sport fans, right? And they also don't even like pro wrestling. So then they know nothing about sports. They know nothing about pro wrestling. So they have nothing to compare it to. So that's why this stuff isn't obvious because they don't know anything. Because for you to know anything, you need something to compare it to, right? Let's say you've never seen a chair in your life. For me to describe that chair to you now, then I need something else that you've seen that is sort of similar to that chair Then I could work off of that. If you've never seen anything similar to that, then we got nothing to work with here, right? It's completely new. So the UFC is that. You have nothing to compare it to, so that's all you know. That's water to you, and you're a fish. And so it's the only thing you've ever seen as far as sports. So if you're a fish in water, you're no longer going to even recognize water. You're just like, I guess that's just how sports is. I guess that's normal, right? Whereas we look at other stuff. Part of the reason why we like MMA is because we like other stuff, which helps us appreciate MMA too, right? It also helps us criticize it because we're not so devoted to it. Sheepishly obedient to whatever narrative is being forced down our throats. You know, and you should, you should approach anything that you love with some skepticism to, to sort of secure its purity or to, to, to achieve the higher level that you know it can attain. And for some reason, like MMA is the exact opposite of that. 
they always seem to want to reduce it back down to its its shittiest form, right? So you throw nothing but left hooks or, or nothing but hooks, hook, 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 coming in big, and then um, someone beats you to your hips and takes you back and chokes you out. But yet they're a wimp or they're they're the weaker fighter for having done that, even though it's a sport that has a grappling component and a submission component. They will still say that that was the weaker way out. It, it is this, this, this want to push this highest form of combat while distilling it to the, the uh, and debasing it, in my opinion, to the lower forms of combat. Like, it's like high-level bum fights, right? Or whatever that shit used to be back in the day. They used to just swing on each other and it was wild and entertaining because there was like a chaos factor. Bum fights just in the name is exploitative. And that's sort of what the fan base that isn't you and me loves. That exploitative, oh, these guys, they die in there. Really? For 10,000 and 10,000, you fucking die in there? I mean, I want to give you a hug because fuck, your life has been rough. Shit, man. Like, you got to be better than that. You got to be worth more than that. I hate to say it, but it's like the type of fan base that Dana White and the UFC wants are like the school shooter types. They're the ones who will idolize Dana White and will die on a hill for Dana White. It's these people who have like no other interest than this one thing, right? So they don't know anything about other stuff. It's just this. And they're bigoted like Dana White. They have toxic masculinity. They're probably incels. They love Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you know, it's the school shooter type. It's all dudes. And that's who Dana wants. That's who he wants to cater this to. And I think it frustrates us because UFC is not necessarily MMA, but it's become so synonymous. And he's like taking this thing that could have been the sport that ultimately underlying it should be a sport. And he's doing this shit to it yes and by and when he acts like a child when he's immature and he's supposed to be a pr nightmare and his fan base support him in spite of you realize that you don't have like the true social thinkers that you would think that would make up just any i don't know individual comprised of an 80 iq or higher that that they they don't think that way they think he's okay they think maybe someday they're going to be the boss and they'll be able to put their foot on the throat of any of their employees and they'll be able to be dictatorial and they'll have that's what it means to be an owner and hey how about you build something yourself all right how about you buy something because they bought fucking pride and luta libre and those sports existed long before them and i got news for everybody the gracies didn't invent jiu-jitsu Come on, man. Like this shit has been iterative and you forget the true origin of this shit. You give credit to the loudest, ugliest motherfuckers. I mean, ugliest in terms of their fucking soul. And that's who you cater to. That's who you worship. And I say, I am just a little fucking higher. Just a bit. Now, I'd ask you to be better if I thought it was in the, in the realm of possibility, but I, I doubt it. So I'll just keep watching fights with the the volume turned down <laughs> you know i was looking for a a way to bring this up and i was like should i like write an article should i do an episode about this but i think this is the perfect venue to bring this up because when we're talking about shadiness and things that are suspicious right another thing that nobody's talking about is like how in the ufc it's like the same 
five people manage everybody. It's like the same five gyms is where all the UFC fighters come from. It's like the same two or three promotions that get to be feeders for the UFC, right? It is this monopsony where basically it's whoever the UFC has deemed one of us is now they're acting as UFC proxies where they're not necessarily owned by the UFC per se, but they're still part of the UFC parent company. They're basically UFC. So that's why these managers will side with the promotion over their own clients. They won't fight for their better pay. Here's the other thing also, right? If you dig a little bit deeper, as far as just not just connections with the UFC, but it's like, how many of these people who work for the UFC, like matchmakers, right? Referees, media people, coaches, managers, all train or affiliated with the same jujitsu teams, right? Then it starts getting really fishy, right? How come... This guy got this favorable matching with this guy, and that guy trains with this jujitsu Gracie coach, right? And then you're like the managers with them also. And then Mick Maynard is also with them also. And then, you know, so there's so many other ways that this whole thing is scandalous and not a sport and it's shady as fuck. You look at who are all the people in bed with each other, and you realize this is all just one big cartel. This is just all. Like the mafia, it's just one big family and it's everybody looking out for each other. Nobody's unbiased. Sometimes they get busted. We found out a couple of years ago, right? A referee who did a really suspicious decision where you find out the fighter he saved, him and that fighter are from the same gym or the same affiliation, right? So there's a lot of shady shit like that. And the thing is, right? If you've spent any time in Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms and also read up all the from the sexual assault shit, the cultist shit, all the things that have made like even mainstream news about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very, very cultish, even more so than martial arts is by itself. So there's a lot of cultishness in BJJ. So that bleeds into like even media. There's media people who are like, okay, this guy did some shady shit, but we train at the same gym or we're all under the same quote unquote master. Do I want to write an article about this? So even the media can be complicit about this shit. There's like, some media people, I won't name names, who are like always like, oh, they do the good reporting. They talk about this and that. And you're like, well, what don't they talk about? Right. And you look at that shit and you're like, oh, there's certain things they never talk about. There's only certain things that they will talk about. They only expose things about certain stuff, but not other stuff. Right. Because it's still a bit of a, it's, it's still a bit of a bit of a fringe sport. So it's it's built off of this access journalism. Yes. What, what you just described is conflict layered upon conflict upon conflict of interest over and over and over. And it's all problematic. And people are going to come at you and say, well, what are you going to do? You're going to just like have people who don't know anything about the sport, like the, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. I'm like, you guys, like, it'd be impossible to have a ref. Well, then you don't have, you don't have Ricardo Almeida judging fights in New Jersey. Well, he doesn't have, he's, not, he's stepping out on those fights. What if he beat, what if the guy in there beat one of your top contenders and they had a little bit of a beef. Should Ricardo Almeida, who cornered against a fighter previously, now be at the judge's table judging against said fighter? And the answer is no, because he's a human being. And as much as he would like to remain unbiased, it's very, very difficult. It's not possible. Right? It is a violent and chaotic sport that is born of adrenaline, heavy, heavy emotion and passion. And to think that you can just set that aside because some time passed. But 
again, everyone wants to suspend disbelief just long, just just long enough to let their favorite fighter or favorite fight team um, have whatever. Um, I don't want to call it an advantage, but everyone loves to be on the winning team. And you know, hey, if you could do it better, start your own promotion. Why? So the UFC can fucking buy it. Yeah, they <laughs> have you, a monopoly, man. dude. <laughs> <laughs> There's receipts out there, even of uh, quote unquote media MMA media journalists who have gotten paid by the UFC to you know do favorable write ups or ask the questions that the UFC approves of. You have like ESPN in bed with the UFC because they have a partnership. So you had like fucking ESPN reporters on UFC branded official UFC gambling shows, right? So you're saying fighters can't gamble, yet you had a show where fighters come on and it's your show. It's a UFC official UFC show and fighters give their fucking picks for the gambling right? <laughs> along with the lines and say who they're betting on. And you got the ESPN reporter right there next to them. So it's like the whole thing is so shady. And I want to throw something back to like back in the day because people probably don't know about this, but the UFC also back in the day to control the narrative, there used to be popular MMA message boards and the UFC silently bought them up so they could control the narrative of what people were saying about them on those sites. And then they also started paying off popular posters or some of those posters worked for the UFC. This got exposed, but a lot of it is now forgotten because it was a long time ago. But my thought is this never stopped. The UFC is probably like paying certain people. Why do you think why do you think the ESPN deal was so important to them? Yeah. That's why. That's why. Now they are embedded. They are now embedded with with the media. Like I, the the world's biggest sports media network. They're like Paying off freelance writers is too inefficient. Let's just get in bed with the world leader in sports reporting, right? Yeah, we won't buy up uh, what mixedmartialarts.com. Is that what you're talking about? I was on that site. I was on that site. <laughs> you remember this shit, right? I do. I knew what was going on. <laughs> and so I have to think that they're also like certain YouTubers they're in bed with, certain Twitter personalities that have a lot of followers they have to be in bed with, and also probably random sock puppets that they use to like attack people or whatever. I'm sure they've done that in the past. Why wouldn't they continue doing that? When, when all is said and done, 20 years from now, a lot is going to come out. All right? A lot is going to come out. Here's the problem. It's already come out. We're dropping all these bombs right now. But, but, it, but it means nothing to anybody because now, because your opinion is worth as much as my fact. And because cliches like everyone lies on both sides. Without, you can get no trust without truth. And if there's an obfuscation between truth and a lie, and nothing is true and everything is malleable, then then you can you can have no trust. And then if you have no trust and everything is blurry and chaotic, well, then you can get away with this shit in plain sight. So they love this sort of chaotic infighting and the decay of fact and evidence and data analysis. They love that. They love social media creating this sort of chaos of opinion um, in pseudo-intellectualism and pseudo-fact. Without that, you can't have trust. If you don't have trust, then again, at this point, nothing means anything. And we're just sort of swimming in this mire or backstroking through this mire of piss and shit, trying to figure out where it all ends. 
So in the meantime, hey, if the fights are pretty decent, at least that'll distract us because it does me. (laughs) (laughs) It it works. It works. You put something exciting on with some flashing lights, you know? Yeah, related to this, I just wrote a piece called The Invisible Hand of the UFC. So I'll link that to the show notes. So I think that's a good companion to our conversation right now. One of the things I talk about in there is how a couple of years ago, the UFC released the 80-page study telling UFC coaches how they should coach their fighters and how coaches should fight. And it was the studies basically saying stand and bang. That's the best way to win. (laughs) What did you have to do 80 pages of research for just to tell them to fight the way you want? But that's, again, another way they're trying to manipulate the fighters to fight even how they want them to fight, right? And they presented this whole panel for them at one of their UFC conferences. Here's the thing. You're not, quote unquote, an employee, but they make you go to all these fucking conferences and shit. Yeah, they own you. They own your time. They own your time. So again, and if your company is worth billions, if you've paid back that $4 billion note that you've taken out, and your company is now worth billions and you're generating profit, how much does it cost to throw up some lights in the stadium? No? Right? How much are you paying those folks? And if if there's more money on the table, then why is Dana White making so much more than anyone else? In the if the highest, even all your top five guys, top four, top three, top four, top five, Dan is making more at every show than they are, right? And well, he's the promoter. He's the promoter. Wait, let me put this into perspective. The UFC takes a bigger cut from fighters than Don King at his worst ever did. Absolutely, that's a fact. It's not even close. It is not even close. It just isn't. But it's. Hey, um, I mean, we could talk about the hypocrisy when, of the Dana White privilege and with him doing what he's doing with a mostly white audience. But again, it gets we can get more and more political uh, and throw some social theory in. But I could do that for days. <laughs> I wouldn't sleep. I'd just talk about it. I'd just <laughs> talk about it and eat popcorn. <laughs> if you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. All right, let's talk about some fights. And like I said, I'll link that article in the show notes, The Invisible Hand of the UFC. I think it's a good companion if you want to dig into more of this. There's a lot in there. I go in depth, so check that out. Now let's talk about Jan Blahovic versus Magomed Ankalaev, which ended in a draw. And to be honest, I didn't hate that decision. What I hated was Dana White then announcing another title fight with completely different people this time. Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill. So. That was just baffling to me. But let's talk about this fight because Blahovich seemed really bummed he couldn't stop the takedowns and get back up, especially since he made wrestling his priority for this camp and even made his wrestling coach his head coach. What was going on with his counter-wrestling? How come he was getting taken down and how come he couldn't get up? Especially when, at least in the first two and a half rounds, he seemed like he was really doing a good job of defending those takedowns. 
Well, I think you, you, when you say two and a half rounds, I think we have to look at fatigue. It's mostly fatigue here, in my opinion. You know, Jan was easily peeling Ankalaev off of his hips in the earlier rounds. He had good reaction time. You know, and Jan is a strong, strong man. He just pulled uh, Ankalaev up off his hips, whizzer, hip turn, you know, pummeled inside, separated, and went back to those leg kicks, and he was scoring. So he was doing the right things then. He really was. Um, and, but I also, at the same time, as impressive as that was, because it really was impressive, um, I think some of it was um, Uncle Ives wrestling uh, in, the, in those early rounds was a little bit of a, of a desperation due to the damage he was taking to the legs. So when you, you, you get thumped time after time in the calves and then you try to push off, you're doing it a little bit at distance. and it's a little bit more, a little bit more telegraphed and a little bit more desperate, you know. But it's still a credit to Ankalaev for coming out strong after, in between rounds, after his legs sort of recovered and running through a few takedowns, beating, uh, beating Young to his hips and running, running through him and finishing on top, and you know, and you know, spending a ton of time there in the, the final round, and you know, possibly, in my opinion, it was it was a very very close fight. I don't know how you scored the first round. I thought I, I sort of had it for Uncle Live because I, I thought his his counter punching was great. But at the same time, with hindsight, you realize that those kicks to the leg that I wasn't scoring for Jan in the first round really did take a toll. So, like with hindsight, maybe I give it to to Jan. Maybe you know I don't know. It was a hell of a fight. I mean, I, I think people who would call it boring. Uh, need to need to, to rewatch it and understand some of the damage that like both fighters took and continued continued to fight through. And if you consider that boy, I tell you, try throwing caution to the wind with either of these motherfuckers in front of you. <laughs> it was a brutal fight. I guarantee the rest of the week they're both in wheelchairs. They are not going to be able to walk. Yeah, I mean those those kicks like they're big guys who just. The thumping and the slapping and clapping of bone on bone and bone on on flesh over and over. If you're not paying attention to that, then you don't you don't have a true understanding of the human physiology and the damage that 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 the human body can endure, right? And if you see the way these guys fought, I was really, really impressed with Ankalaev celebrating after the fifth round on his legs that were just trashed. Oh, when he was walking back to the locker room, he couldn't walk anymore when the adrenaline <laughs> right, was gone. Right? Adrenaline's a hell of a thing. It certainly is. Now, what surprised me was the striking because I thought Ankalaev would have Blahovich's number, but that was not the case at all. If it stayed standing, I thought Blahovich could have finished. And a few times, if Blahovich blitzed like he used to, I think he could have. So what was going on with the striking? Well, let me ask you this. Who would you pick to teach a striking class at your gym? <laughs> Jan or Ankalaev? Ankalaev. <laughs> right? For sure. You know, but who would you rather get hit by? Ankalaev. Ankalaev. You know who wants to get touched by, by Jan? And it's the, the oddity that is his striking is incredibly effective at the same time. Even his low kicks don't look great. He looks like a, a slightly above average pro fighter in terms of technique. But it works for him. He keeps his guard up high. He's got a good chin. He's physically strong. 
and he's very densely boned. To your point about densely boned, it doesn't even look like he's throwing them kicks that hard. But the way the other fighters react, not just Ankalaev, but other fighters that he's fought, it's different. It's not him even loading up. There must be just denseness to him. His bones must be thick. Something. He'll jack, he'll jack fighters in the shoulder and they just twist their entire torso. Like they, they have to react. Everything is a thud and a thump. Um, and he doesn't throw it wildly. He literally just sort of turns and touches, turns and touches. And it doesn't look great when he's doing it. He's, not, he's one of those fighters that it doesn't have what I would call like precision of technique. But what he does works for him and it works well. And I don't really know how to describe it. You check and you're still hurt. Usually when you check, the kicker is hurt. Not with Blahovich. Yep. He's made a lead or something. <laughs> and so I, I think whoever trained him on how like his punching style and his fight style like kept it within his wheelhouse and with his with his physical attributes and again like if you said how would you how would you polish up Jan Blachowicz I would say I wouldn't <laughs> like I just let him, let him go do what he does because whether or not he's winning a fight or losing a fight he's usually hurting in the meantime now Blachowicz later on began overreacting to takedowns do you think there's something psychological happening there but when you're fatigued you have you, you understand that it is it is a gross motor movement that requires like a full clearing of your hips and keeping your feet underneath you. And if you do that on legs that are very very fatigued, and you know he was kick heavy in that in that fight, and he the, the wrestling I'm sure zapped him. Um, you tend to overreact for those gross movements. It's not something like a parry or a little head shift um, or a little shimmy of the hips in your reaction that you can use as sort of like a, a gauge of rhythm and timing like you either have to react to a takedown or you don't react right um there is like really no no partial or else you're going to get your hips blown through but it's easier to control that distance with with footwork feints of your own and showing some other techniques straights to the body showing some knees but you also tend to hesitate on those things when you are fatigued so i mean when you dial it back a little bit because of that, and Uncle Ive was strategic in recovering in between rounds. And he's also incredibly grizzled. He is a tough human being. His legs were so chewed up, I didn't think that there was a chance. I really didn't. I'm, and I, I, you know me, I'm, I like him. I think he's a really good fighter. I think he's a huge upside. And I, after he was getting dropped with those leg kicks and he was on those, those, leg, those rubbery legs for so long, I didn't think he was going to recover, and he did in between rounds. And Jan did a good job going back to some of those those uh, kicks and scoring with them. But you know, he got um, Uncle I've got just enough of a recovery in between rounds to to do what he did in the the championship rounds to to sneak away with a draw. Now, talk to me about Ilya Taporia and his win over Bryce Mitchell because you've been high on this guy for a while, and he's still so young. I love the kid. I think Tapir is going to be uh, a stalwart of the 145-pound division. And I wasn't sold on Bryce Mitchell because I didn't like him. And that was all my bias, right? Bryce Mitchell's good. He's a good fighter. You know, I just don't like his politics. I don't like his flatter bullshit or whatever bullshit he espouses. But he can fight, right? He, he can. You know, he just 
tough ass hill jack who doesn't give a shit, but his technique's not bad. And the one thing Ilya Tapiria was doing in that low stance was leaning a little bit a la um, Daniel Cormier to his strong side and use the risk of a head kick from that stance. And uh, Bryce Mitchell saw it and he tried to score with it. So he, he's a good decision maker. He's, he's, he's a good fighter. But uh, Ilya Tapuria is a fucking fantastic fighter. I'm telling you, the kid has the goods. I mean, he's, I'm going to call him a kid because he's 20-something. I mean, as far as UFC age, right? He's real young. Right? He's 25. He's 25 years old. And he was, yes, he was overthrowing his punches at times. But that's only because he was, he was like whipping them with the looseness of, of, like, of a boxer where if you missed, like his boxing has improved quite a bit. And rather than like talking about Bryce Mitchell being elusive at times and having a little bit of decent defense, they kept saying that Superior was, was overthrowing everything. And I was annoyed when, when Rogan said, on the ground, Superior was in Bryce Mitchell's world. Because on any fucking planet, in every fucking solar system, in every aspect of MMA, Mitchell was paying rent at Tapiri. There's no fucking doubt about it. Yep, because yep. Tapiri, it, right? He is he is the superior fighter, and he's also the superior wrestler, and more than capable in all aspects of grappling against Mitchell. Who, yes, Mitchell is a stud, but did they forget that? Like at 22 years old, Tapiri had his fucking black belt. Yeah, the kid's no slouch. Like, what's I? I get it. There's a narrative that they they've got scripted, but he didn't. Tapiri didn't just learn to wrestle. <laughs> He didn't just learn jujitsu. He's been a black belt for a while. He's the more physical of the two. He's the better athlete of the two. To act like those things didn't exist was a little bit crazy. And you know, I guess it's their job to make the make the fights seem. It's not. It's their job to fucking commentate, not to make it seem more competitive than it is. So fuck that, right? Yeah. I don't think I need to give them any more credit than they deserve. Give the credit to the young man who has improved his game, even though it was already exceptional. And to rank him 14th <laughs> is a fucking joke. Are you shitting me? Like, you don't know, at that point, you don't have the ability to judge talent. And you can't parse another fighter's skill set. If it isn't glaring and obvious to you how good Ilya Tapiri is, you're just a fucking asshole. All right. And you have no business in the fight game. There's nothing unbiased about the commentary, right? Like, you know how they're investigating the James Krause thing? Don't stop with James Krause. Just keep investigating. Just keep going. <laughs> Just keep going all the way to the top. Yes. You know, maybe we might let Bryce Mitchell do the investigation. <laughs> call it the, Bryce, the Bryce Mitchell report, like in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll find a lot of stuff, but not any of the stuff that we're interested in. Nothing that we're nothing, nothing that we're interested in. I mean, as long as we're on this, right? That Patty Pimblet, quote unquote, interview with Dana White again, not unbiased, not an interview. That was, I mean, there's been bigger chuds, and you know, we've had Colby Covington, we've had Conor McGregor, but as far as bootlicking goes, right? We've even had Sam Smiling Alvy, right? But as far as bootlicking, that Patty Pimblet talk with Dana White. That had to have been the worst ever in the whole 30-year history of the UFC. That had to have been the worst. Especially when he sell that disingenuous motherfucker sells himself as some sort of working class hero. <laughs> to bootlick the fucking man like that. To bootlick the fucking man like that. Oh my god. Is a fucking slap in the face to 
anyone who's left of center. I mean, even the fucking centrists were like, fuck, dude. He always says he represents the working class. I'm like, that's representing the working class? Come on, dude. It's a fucking joke. And it made me sad to see, like, best case scenario is that Patty Pimblett really meant those things when he said he was uh, like for the working man and that he was, uh, you know, true social impact and social interest. The sad part of that is that even if he was a true believer, that a little bit of money and influence could change him so fucking quickly. And that's the problem. He was saying that early on, but ever since he started getting close with Dana, with Barstool Sports, all of that, I haven't heard that talk in a while. It disgusts me because it was... <laughs> your, your beef is that you're not getting paid to do an interview when you're doing an interview with your boss and <laughs> siding with him. <laughs> Come on, man. How weak is that? And going back to just continuing this investigation, even that win, right? This whole narrative, this whole thing, that win. Just keep going. Just keep investigating, right? Yeah, go. You uh, go. You guys. I think the Barstool guys were the judges. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's the thing about talking about fighters that they believe are marketable. Because they, well, then there's that, oh, well, he, he's got the clean record. He's, uh, he's got the panache and the personality. That certain je ne sais quoi. Well, then, if it's about those things and not about fighting, then why are there even fucking judges? Why don't we just like <laughs> let the fans scream and whoever gets the louder screams will do it like that, right? Whatever fucking twisted game show that used to be. And you know, we'll, we'll just score fights by decibel level of crowd interest, I guess. Looking at that fight, dude, don't put all your horses on this guy because he's not that good. He's going to turn into like Sage Norcut. Matt, Matt Frivola would put him in a fucking coma. He would hit that fucking right hand, left hook combination. He would fucking wreck Pimble. Give Matt Frivola that fight. You, number one, it's going to be the most entertaining fight you've ever seen. Most entertaining fight. Frivola will be in his shit from the fucking jump. And, and Frivola, Frivola comes from a good family. The, Decent money, but he is more a working class everyman, working class here than fucking Patty Pimblett at this point. Fucking by far, fucking exponentially in orders of magnitude, more representative of everyman than Patty fucking Pimblett. And Frivola's improved at fighting. He he has become an educated brawler, and I didn't know if if his chin could handle that, but he's proved it that it that it can and even though he's defensively negligent i think his his defense exists in the fact that he's not letting you settle on anything precise because he's in your shit so much and he has the chin the aggression and the fortitude to to take you out of your element and take that precision and accuracy away from you i do fear that he's going to come up against someone at the higher level who can counter punch and it, it might be problematic for him, but I think the kid deserves a big money fight against Pimblet. And if anyone deserves to to derail that hype train, I'd like to see uh, see Frivola and the F bomb get it done. The only thing exceptional about Patty Pimblet is his chin, and that's not a good thing. There were so many shots he took clean on the chin, and he just kept walking through it. And if that's your best attribute, that only lasts so long. Yeah, you can only rely on that so much, and you can only back out with your head up and 
he gets away with it because he's also a very large fighter for the weight class. So um, if Gordon wasn't punching uphill the entire time, he probably would have put his heads into the fucking hundredth row, you know, deep into the bleachers. But he's punch, he's punching uphill, um, and you know that. You know, we could talk about. I had him winning every fucking round, man. Like even though he did nothing but kick. Like how do you? Dana wanted to to jump his shit, saying it was the worst game plan I've ever seen. Him going to the third round and coasting like that. I don't know, man. When you're up two rounds to none, and really the only way. I think I think that you could possibly lose is getting knocked out, and you put him against the cage, and you beat him up against the cage more than he's beating you up. Then I think you still win that fight, regardless of whether or not Dana White accepts it as a viable game plan. And I'm tired of these assholes saying, "Well, he didn't do any damage on the ground." Okay, well then what about the damage he did when he had Pimblet against the cage? Oh, that pitter pat shit should count. Well, then why does a pitter-pat shit count when you're on your back and you have someone in closed guard? Why does a pitter-pat count for you then? Why do you pick what pitter-pat shit counts and what does not? Patty's 50 punches count more than Jared Gordon's 90. Right? <laughs> that's, that's their take on it. Oh, significant strikes. Well, I wasn't scoring some of the inside leg kicks as significant for Jan Blachowicz until poor Akhtaliyev couldn't fucking walk. And then I had to go... Uh, yeah, I probably, probably blew that call. I mean, it's one of those fights, even if you look at the stats, it's still going to go against Patty. I don't think any metric is going to make Patty look good. It's just going to be all the subjective views of his fans. Yeah, even SureDog got it right for once. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone on SureDog had 30-27 across the board for Gordon. Okay, okay, there you go. Now, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is Darren Till. He's one in five in his last six fights, and on a three-fight skid. Last time we talked about Dominic Reyes, but Till doesn't seem like he's lost his chin. But he went from future of the UFC, kind of like how Patty is now, right? That was where Till was before. And now this is where he's at. He's another big fall from grace. How does he look to you now? What do you think is going on with him? I think his legs are shot. I think he's had a lot of injuries. It becomes difficult to get the same repetitions that you once did. The rumor is that he tore his ACL in this fight. Okay, right. And that's not the first time he's suffered a significant knee injury. He's, he's hurt his shoulder as well. Well, you need your legs, you need your knees to kick and to move around. Um, and you need your shoulders to punch. So when kicking and punching becomes even slightly more difficult, then it becomes slightly more difficult each and every time you do it when training. I think he also had a really bad eye injury from an eye poke in training before this fight. So now he might have permanent uh, vision problems on top of everything you just listed. Right. So it's his body sort of giving up on him. And that's a shame because I think he's a pretty decent fighter. Yeah, his takedown defense is shitty. And he probably should have fought some shitheads and, and got some wins or maybe just some one-dimensional wrestlers where he lost around and had to, uh, and then maybe came back with something late and had to work on some timing and some footwork to avoid some of the wrestling exchanges um, and develop that way. But, I mean, whenever the, the injuries start to take their toll, the wrestling repetitions start to decrease. You start to think maybe you still have that 
that knockout power and you know hopefully it can it can translate from the 170 pound division to 185 pounds i don't know what it was i just know that the, that the you know the human body is a smart machine and it decides what it wants to do when it wants to do things sometimes and we we can always talk about mind over matter or the mind muscle connection but sometimes the body is like hey son it's time to sit this one out and i think that's what it's starting to tell there until and to connect the mind with the body there were those instances where he lost and he got into a really bad depression right and he basically got really out of shape. And then as his mental health improved, he had to get back in shape. So there were several times where he got really out of shape too, which I think also led to him getting injured, right? So I think it was just, he wasn't taking care of his body like he should as a professional fighter because he was so down on himself about those losses, which made him lose more, which got him more injured. And those injuries are also messing with his confidence, which makes the staying in shape worse and taking care of his body worse. And it's just become this vicious cycle, I think, with him. Absolutely. We, we don't know exactly how old he is physiologically, right? We know how old he is, like in terms of, like, we can take a look at uh, w- when he was born, but how fighters train the injuries that we know of versus the injuries that we don't, you know, it's, if you took a, take a look at a, a fighter's MRI, like do a full PET scan or full body MRI, you'd just be just blown away by the massive amount of trauma that they're in their joints, that the, the, the concussive trauma. I mean, all of it would be startling to you if you really wanted to know. And there are varying degrees. Some fighters are much more durable. And I think I should also mention, based on what you're saying, right, talking about the body and the injury, on top of all this, basically, he's had some incidents where he was unbelievably drunk. And so... You also got to wonder how much drinking factors into all this. How much is he drinking? Is he drinking while he's in camp? Does he have a problem with drinking? Because it looks like it if you look at some of these incidents. Also, if he's using alcohol to self-medicate, you know, like that on top of everything else, he doesn't seem like a healthy person, let alone a healthy fighter. No, and a lot of fighters aren't, right? They're they're normally born of like trauma and self-worth issues or, you know, I don't want to overly generalize, but like. So, so you talk about self-medicating, who knows? In, in, again, there's this thing where this disregard you have for your own physical well-being is sort of what makes a fighter, right? You have to blunt that protective mechanism knowing that you're going in. But at the same time, you have to protect yourself. So eating healthy, staying away from the booze, staying away from the the hardcore drugs and alcohol, stretching, recovery time, paying attention to diet, nutrition, rest, recovery, all those things. At the same time, it's antithetical to go in there and get your head beat in today. It's all about protecting yourself and keeping yourself uh, healthy so that you can go in there and hurt yourself. There's a, there's a, a bitter irony to all that. At the same time, like concussive trauma will change the way it will alter your cognition. It'll alter your emotion. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a lot to consider. I just, I mean, we we discussed this on the last the last episode. I worry about these fighters and their long term health because I know that the UFC doesn't. They will say the niceties and the they'll get the the press blips and blurbs and but at the end of the day, maybe they'll, they'll donate 
a little bit of money, but when the shit gets thick and uh, the behavior gets erratic, sad, or out of control, then you're not going to see the UFC hanging around or highlighting the issue um, in an attempt to ever resolve it. They'll, they'll deny, 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 and put a PR spin the way monopolies and the mega rich have always done. <laughs> All right. I think that's enough for this episode. It's a doom and gloom. <laughs> this is a spicy one. <laughs> All right. If you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have a Substack now. You can support us on there if you want to. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory, believe it or not. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, also on Patreon, also on Substack. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes along with that article, The Invisible Hand of the UFC. With all that said, thanks for listening. Always a pleasure.